Hello and welcome back to Life and Inside Job. It's the podcast where we centre our internal lives as sources of comfort, nourishment and creativity. My name is Kate, Kate Codrington. I'm the author of Second Spring, The Self-Care Guide to Menopause, which is one of the menopause canon according to the New York Times and I am pretty damn pleased about that. And in no particular order, I'm a writer, a mentor, a speaker, an artist and a facilitator and of course a podcaster. Here we are. And the other thing I love to do is have soulful, meandering conversations with people about how their inner lives nourish them. And today you get to listen to that too. Today's guest is the ridiculously prolific Stella Duffy whose work I have admired for years, and I finally met her last year, and I fangirled her in a really messy, sweaty, embarrassing kind of way, and I felt like such an idiot. But a little while afterwards, a woodpecker landed on my bird feeder, um, and that felt so magical that I asked her to come and have a chat on the podcast, and she said, yes, yay. And she's just completed a doctorate in existential psychotherapy and her research is in the embodied experience of postmenopause. So you can see what we have in common there. And as well as her private psychotherapy practice, she's worked in NHS cancer psychological support and hospice bereavement support. And then there's the 17 novels 70 short, over 70 short stories, 15 plays, and she's worked in theatre for 35 years as an actor, director, facilitator, improviser, and co-founder for eight years, co-director of Fun Palaces, which I highly recommend you look up, and does her inclusion work too. So no wonder she got an OBE. She bloody deserves it. It's a lot. Incredibly prolific which is a sort of delicious irony because what we talked about in our conversation is endings, is about loss, is about mortality and about the value of living with a sense of our ageing instead of denying it and the exquisite possibilities for being more ourselves that this brings. Sarah is hugely generous with sharing her life experience. And there are some just gorgeous, beautifully profound moments that she shares in this interview. And I was I was moved to tears several times. And we also talk about the ubiquity of HRT, of menopause, uh, hormone therapy, which is often prescribed wrongly for all menopause ailments, very often without evidence and using a misogynistic and ageist language to promote it. So we have a, we have a good old go at that, about that and feminine forever. I think that you will enjoy this very much. Sela, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to have a really juicy conversation because you've been in postmenopause for a very long time. So <laughs> I figure you've had you have a lot of you have really good perspective a lot yeah, of experience I think, I think you're in in your body and yeah. you stuff and you're a psychotherapist so yeah can you maybe just a little sketch of what how you arrived in post mm, sure 
Um, so I'm 60 now, but uh, when I was 36, I was diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time. And that was in 2000 and again in 2014. But in 2000, I had surgery, six months of chemotherapy and two months of radiotherapy. And it was a long time ago. It was 24 years ago now. Um, in fact, this week, it was 24 years ago since my first diagnosis. Chemo, you know, it's still brutal. I'm not for a moment, I work with people with cancer. I'm not for a moment saying it's not, but the chemos we used to give and the combinations we used to give were pretty damn tough. So the chemotherapy I had pushed me into menopause um, at 36, 37, because it was a six month period. And it was exactly at the point that my wife and I were trying to have children with our baby father. We knew all three of us were very fertile. And um, I had five embryos made just before chemo started and then tried with them a couple of years afterwards and every single one of them died inside me. So at the same time in my mid to late thirties, I had both, well, all three, cancer, menopause and infertility all at once. And my wife did get pregnant, but then miscarried and never got pregnant again. So I felt like I became 55 at 36. I remember saying to people, this body, because also cancer treatment can age us, this body is older. I'm older in this body. And it was, I mean, there's also the wisdom of mortality and recognizing that I would die. I will die. Um, and I think that's, can be aging. It can be delicious as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I wish we were better at acknowledging death on a, I was going to say daily basis, but I think hourly is probably better. Um, so anyway, that's what happened to me. And what was really interesting was seeing my peers catch up. Huh. So when my mates also became menopausal, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm not alone anymore. And this was long, long before, you know, menopause was um, being marketed to us all yeah. as the end of our lives. And so, of course, it wasn't the end of my life for me because it couldn't be because I was so bloody grateful I'd survived a really rubbish cancer. Um, and so it wasn't, yeah, my menopause was rubbish, but it wasn't as bad as having six months of chemotherapy. It wasn't as bad as being, you know, I'm, I was having 40 hot flushes an hour. There were lots of tricky symptoms. Um, I have pretty bad osteoarthritis, more to do with the cancer than an early menopause um, and the chemo in particular. Um, again, I want to hasten to add uh, the chemos they gave then. Um, because, of course, the immunotherapies are great. They're still tricky, but they're great. But the thing was, I was there and I've been there a long time. And what being there a long time has shown me is it's not the end of the world and it's not the end of life. And I find the current narrative that menopause is the end really disturbing because I think it's deeply capitalist and patriarchal and dangerous. So, How do you see that showing up? Um, I see it showing up in the story that unless you go on HRT, you will get dementia and therefore you will be a drain on the health service. Unless you take these drugs. You old flag. Uh-huh. How dare you? How dare you <laughs> have contributed all this time? This story that it's only, and it's not even, it's not replacement therapy. 
I mean, we're not giving nine-year-olds estrogen. We're not saying nine-year-olds are in estrogen deficit. So why are we saying 50-year-olds are in estrogen deficit? We're not saying those of us, and, and I didn't, who had hormonal breast and um, ovarian cancers were in estrogen excess, but we could. We could call it that, but we're not. Because you can't make money that way. But And I'm, you know, I, my wife's using menopause hormone therapy, right? It, I know that for some people it is ideal and exactly right, but it is not the only panacea and neither are the truckloads of supplements or the dozens of people suddenly becoming, you know, I don't know, menopause doulas or whatever. It's like, sure, have you been working in this field for a long time? Have you cared about it for ages or have you just seen a way to make some money? Um, it's infuriating to me. But this story that unless we're taking the drugs, we are going to be doing our culture a disservice because we will have osteoporosis, we will have dementia. You know, the Highland Mayan women from Guatemala, it's a great study. God, I wish I could remember whose it is. I'm really sorry I can't because it's a brilliant study. It might be from 2002. Anyway, um, I'll send you and you put the link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. The Highland Mayan Guatemalan women, um, uh, don't drink alcohol, have a lot of calcium in their diet from childhood, and in their 70s are still walking two miles there and back a day to fetch water. In a major study with bone scans, comparing their bones with the bones of North American women, both lots of bones were similarly osteoporotic, but the Highland Mayan Guatemalan women didn't have any fractures. And it's because their musculature and their fascia was strong enough to hold it because they were still exercising, because they were still eating and drinking well, because they were still, and also because in their culture, they're valued. They, the smocks that they wear, they change the fabric. So it goes from being a heavy linen to a thinner cotton and the smocking changes to indicate here I am an older woman who can be respected. I'm sure there's shit things in that culture too, like there isn't any culture. But if we can know that to be the truth, you cite the Japanese studies in Second Spring a lot, we know that there are plenty of cultures where women have not been consistently taking all the supplements, all, all the drugs, and they've, they've lived really well through menopause and into postmenopause by eating well, drinking well, you know, and exercising and being loved as old women. I honestly think it's that's the key though, being loved as old women. So, so many things I want to dive into there. But I, I think I'd like to summarize though that HRT can be really helpful. Yep, absolutely. And also, it's often used with a an ageist, mm -hmm. sexist, misogynistic, patriarchal narrative that you should shut up and get on with it. Yes, and it's entirely based on Robert Wilson's Feminine Forever that is horrified that we might not want to screw men all the why, time. That is literally is that book, what it is. Why is that book still in print? Oh, isn't it shocking? I mean, so seriously. What, what, what the actual fuck? So for people who don't know what it is, maybe you could say what... Okay, so in 1960... Context. One, two, Robert Wilson, MD, um, and um, but not gynecologist, MD, um, an American doctor uh, said that um, 
that, that we all, all the women from early 40s, ideally, uh, need to be taking hormone replacement therapy, better known as menopause hormone therapy, um, in order to keep ourselves feminine, lovely, not to become, oh God, there's, there's a particularly disgusting phrase. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Jane Usher's great on it. Oh, I'll look it up for later. Um, anyway, it's about how, just how, how gross we are as old women and that our age, our, oh, the sex, the sexlessness, he calls us eunuchs. I mean, it's just shocking. I am going to try and find this phrase. Um, uh, the monstrous feminine, right? It's like that we're, that we're not women and whatever, whatever the fuck women is, right? We're not women because our uteruses have stopped working and we're not moist and delicious and plump in our vulvas and vaginas. And that taking these drugs will make all the difference and it will keep us young and it will keep men interested in us. That's what the book's about. <laughs> and it set off a revolution. I mean, clearly, with a with a sort of contemporary lens, this is nuts. So people listening would be very surprised to hear that there are influential people who <laughs> rate this book. Um, there are. One of the most influential persons, um, he just, you know, has enough airtime, frankly. Um, he put the cover of that book on her Instagram feed in the last couple of months, saying, this book changed my mother-in-law's life. Anyway... We don't all have to buy into that, is my point. And part of the problem is that it is deeply patriarchal because it says this is what a woman is and she has to stay that way. Part of the problem is that it's massively capitalist because it suggests that unless we are working and contributing all the time, ideally by making babies, obviously, for Robert Wilson, um, then we are not of value. But for me, and now that I'm working as a psychotherapist from a psychotherapeutic and as an existential psychotherapist perspective, what's really damaging is it pretends we're not dying. It pretends that aging is wrong. So Foucault, <laughs> so funny to me. I said to you earlier, I'm the first in my family to go to university, but I'm also the first in my family to finish secondary school long enough to pass the exams to go to university. And they're all bright, smart people. There was just no money. I'm the youngest of seven from a council estate in South London. Anyway, I can now quote Foucault, hurrah, um, who I didn't even know existed five years ago. Um, and uh, Foucault talks about the birth of the clinic and that in order for medical clinics to exist at all, and the God, you know, I'm alive because of medicine. Of course, I'm not slagging off medicine. Western medicine as well, even though I did lots of complementary things. But in order for the clinic to work, we have to treat the healthy body as normal. And therefore, the things that come with age become abnormal, rather than the aging body also being normal. And the aging body is, you can't get more human than that. I'm just taking a quick break from the podcast to let you know that you can access a variety of rest practices and yoga nidra meditations right now from my website if you'd like to. So you can have a rest wherever you are. You can do that from my homepage at katecodrington.co.uk 
and go to start here, or you can follow the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, there's there's it's there's there's a whole thing. This, we're going we're going off topic here, but there's a whole thing that drives me insane about how we consider health. Yes, health. right. Health is our our baseline. It's exactly what what you're saying. How health is our baseline, and anything off that mm. is usually down to our faultiness. Uh huh. Health and happiness. Mm. Because if you're not happy, you must be depressed or anxious, and and we've got to give you some drugs for that as well. And again, from a psychotherapeutic point of view, of course there are drugs that work, but you know what? There's also amazing placebo tests research that shows that for the vast majority of antidepressants, placebos work too. And it's because people just need to be listened to. That's what the vast majority of people need. And we need to stop pretending that happiness is a norm. Mm. happiness is no more a norm than health is and then people who are depressed or unhappy or anxious or feeling like shit today and maybe fine tomorrow would stop going around going what's wrong with me yeah nothing wrong with you you're human and some days you feel like shit it's all right Mm. yeah (laughs) people ask me what I do and I still haven't figured it out but one of the things I say to make people laugh is that I'm the chief validation officer. Yes, exactly. Because mostly what I do, people say, ow, this hurts. And I say, yeah, mm-hmm. it really fucking does. Mm, exactly. And I you hear know, that. This is why it's so shocking when we look at the way the um, the attitude towards grief is, that, that we might diagnose people as depressed if they're not over their grief in six months. Grief is a lifelong experience. It changes, sure, but it stays with us because we cared about the people we've lost. That's why grief matters. We don't want to medicate it away or get rid of it. Otherwise, we're forgetting our loved ones. We honour them by grieving. We honour the body by, by grieving its changes and then welcoming what comes next. Yeah, and that is the healing process. That is menopause process. Mm-hmm. That is recovery. And it's not, it's, as you were saying earlier, it's not a one-time shot. It's no. a cyclical thing that just yeah, yeah. goes on and yeah. on and on. And I know people kind of get cross with me because of the kind of sparkliness of second spring. But that's just part of a new cycle. Totally. Die at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> we got to die. That's right. And and I love the sparkliness of Second Spring just purely as an antidote to the, oh, my God, you're old and dying now. How terrible. You're ageing. And, yes, we are old. See, um, I, I, I'm, I would take issue with you, even though you've Not got the entirety, the entirety of uh, non-Western culture behind you. I'm not sure it's second. I, I'm much more interested in the third phase. So I perceive postmenopause to be the, the third, the vital third act of our lives. So we've got up to adulthood where we're finding out who we are. Then we've got adulthood, which in cisgender women's bodies can show up as the reproductive years, but not for all of us. And then in postmenopause, we've got the how do I grow towards my death? And so from my studies, 
I talk about it more as a third phase than a second phase. And that's also partly to do with aging because I'm a little bit unhappy with this whole, oh, menopause happens at midlife. No, it doesn't. If it's 51 and a half in the UK, are you going to be 103? I don't think so. And if it's 48 globally, you're going to be 96. Not many of us are. And if your perimenopause is at 41, maybe you're going to get to 82. But, you know, it's that's a lie too. We're not in the middle. We're at the beginning of the end. Mm. I, I, think that, I think when in our sort of little Instagram messaging, mm, mm. we said... I said, what do you want to talk about? What's hot for you? And you said um, endings and the use of HRT, the overprescription of HRT for everything. And I said, well, I think they're linked. And the reason that I think they're linked is because we it's a direct negation of our mortality. HRT <laughs> is a direct negation because if you enter into perimenopause or any transitional mm -hmm. state mm -hmm. that includes grief is with openness and curiosity you are going to have to die to yourself in some yeah. sense you are totally and that you know that's shit it hurts like hell we don't want to do that like please please don't let me do that no, we don't want to do it because we live in a culture that pretends things can ever be static <laughs> which is i mean seriously bonkers and that's not a very good therapeutic term. But anyway, <laughs> I think your phrase, the overprescription of HRT for everything is really useful because, of course, it's enormously useful for some specific things. But treating it as if it's for everything and as if this amazingly um, evolutionarily designed body uh, which, believe me, I've had two cancers and a brain aneurysm. I know it can have its faults. But as if it doesn't already, me, my body, me as one, my spirit, my body, my mind, as if, as if this whole can only be looked after through a biomedical lens. So for me, the really exciting thing is, well, yeah, sure, maybe your heart flushes or your night sweats or your aching legs or your restless legs or your brain fog or any of those things are really driving you crazy right to the end of your tether. And if you can't take the time that you brilliantly recommend in Second Spring while recognising that not all of us can, and if you can't make the space in your life because it's quite hard, at, if you've never done that before, to just start when things are particularly difficult, although I would personally recommend not waiting until you have your second cancer to do it, like I did. Um, you know, if your body's telling you to slow down, maybe you want to listen. My biggest lesson out of... So my cancers were awful and horrible and terrifying. And I got through them and there were things to do. Last year, when I had a ruptured brain aneurysm, there was nothing to do other than wait until I had brain surgery and know that I might die in that 20-hour period. And instead of my mortality being here where it normally is or in my face with a cancer diagnosis like it's been twice, it was... It was in me. I was my mortality. And I'm really lucky to have survived. And I'm really lucky to have survived with no brain damage. And the great gift of that is knowing that I am my death. I don't think I've ever said it so clearly.
Thank you for the space for that. Once I know I am my death, rather than it's out there and another day and another time, then I get to live this. I'm pointing out the window. And it's so crisp and clear. I get to live this. But unless I recognize that I am my death, I don't, I don't know how I get to live, live, live. Because death is the proof of life. And the medications and the Botoxing and the lies about our aging pretends that we're not dying. And I just don't think it's good for us. Well, just for people listening, I'm sitting with my with tears in my eyes and thinking that you know there's nothing more to be said really. And hilariously, there's somebody thumping on my front door. There's death knocking. Oh, that's so brilliant. That's so fantastic. <laughs> not ringing the bell. Not yeah, but that's amazing. Do you want to pause and go and get it? No. No, I have uh, somebody else in my house. Oh, wow. I love that you had thumping on your door there. <laughs> Yeah. So can you, um, okay, this is a bit therapeutic, so you can swap me out the way, but I'm really curious about the granular somatic experience of being, being your death, mm. being your mortality and what to understand a bit more about what that means. I have yeah. an idea, but um, I'd really like to understand more about that. So, what it is for me, and you know, I've I work quite a lot with people with illness as a therapist, so I'm super clear that it's really different for every individual. Um, and I don't normally talk about these things with my clients, but you know, the stuff about my cancers is out in the public eye because of my previous work as a novelist and theatre maker, and I'm really fine for people to know. Um, but it's their therapy when I'm working with them. So just to be clear about that. For me, I, I have a different knowing. And a phrase I've often used, particularly when working with people with cancer, is that um, a major life illness takes away our, virgin, our mortality virginity. So unless we have to confront our own mortality... And because our culture in particular loves to pretend that no one's going to die and, you know, Catherine Mannix's book with the end in mind is so good about this, that we did used to have Nana dying in the front room and now we have to put her in hospital. And it's great that we have better palliative care, but we've, we're so disconnected from death. And so for me, my cancer diagnoses have both been really good remembrances of my death, each of my embryos dying inside me, my body being a site of their death, was really strongly that as well. But and, I hadn't ever had it quite so strongly until the ruptured aneurysm, partly because of the physical pain. So apparently, when you go into hospital with a 
and I was very lucky to get an ambulance really fast and to get into hospital really quickly. And I live near a major teaching hospital with a great neurosurgery team. There's a lot of very good fortune in all of that. But partly one of the first things they ask you is about the pain and and everyone says they've never experienced pain like it. No matter what else, what other pain they've been in in their life, everyone says it's just beyond belief. So for a very, so for what felt like it, an interminable amount of time, I was trying to remain very still so my brain didn't bleed more and being in the most excruciating pain ever. And what came to me was, uh, yes, my wife was sitting beside her, beside me, but I could barely speak because of the pain. And so you don't have any time for your goodbyes if you don't. Oh, I hate it when it does that. That's so funny. <laughs> I put my thumb up to say number one and Zoom did a thumbs up. <laughs> but maybe it's agreeing with me. Um, so you don't have any time to get your goodbyes in. It's not like you've got a big preparation time. So, you know, get your goodbyes in today just in case. Um, and the physicality of it was so strong for me you know my heart rate went up from I know my ordinary heart rate is somewhere around 60 65 in my 50s when I'm sleeping and I had my Fitbit on so I was going up my first walk by myself since my hip replacement and when the aneurysm struck my heart rate went up to 138 in no time like in 30 seconds mm. it was a deeply physical experience and my experience of my cancers was that, yeah, I like, you know, first time around, I had a large tumour, but I wasn't yet in pain. It was the treatments that gave me pain. So there was something very, very granular about immense pain. Mm. And also just the immediacy of it, like it might happen now. Mm. So when the doctor came back after the second brain scan and said, um, we need to do surgery as soon as we can. Um, try not to move. This might still kill you. <laughs> I'm laughing now. But at the time, I mean, also because I was in so much pain, I, could, I couldn't respond. My poor wife it was, in many ways, it was, you know, so much tough. I often think it's much harder to be the person beside. I really do. And I've had a lot of experience of loving the person beside me. Um, so I think my body knew that I was dying because I was in that moment, in those 20 odd hours between it happening and the surgery, I was dying. If they'd have left it, sure, it might have stopped bleeding by itself. It's always possible, but pretty unlikely. Mm. And I really trust that my body knows what's going on. With my first cancer, I was 36, no breast cancer in the family, but then 70% of us don't have it familiarly, despite the story out there. Um, and, uh, it took so long to get diagnosed because, and I had a three and a half centimeter tumor sticking out of me, but it's, they were like, no, it's a cyst and no, it can't be. And no, you're too young. And there are many more younger women with breast cancer now, but in 2000, there really weren't, um, or it wasn't so much of a story. So even though I've had that, this was different. It, I'm different too, though. You know, I've spent five years training in existential psychotherapy. I attend to death in a different way. Mm. I want to attend to death in a different way. And therefore to life. 
So yeah, that's a long-winded answer for what I mean by my death in me. Mm. My body was dying. And I'm really, really bloody fortunate that it that it I didn't. We, how, can we talk about other endings mm. as well? Because that that came, you know, we're talking about the big ending. Yeah. <laughs> we went in, we we dived in to the the big one first. But we, you were also thinking about other endings, mm. and not knowing. Mm. And that's, as you know, that's something that is a delightful place for me. Yeah. Um, I find it delightful too, but, you know, hands up, I find it scary as well. Um, but I also like jumping off really high things into water. So <laughs> so, so I like the scary edges. Um, I, um, I've just come to the end of this doctorate training, so I did a foundation as well because you know i'm because i'm not from an academic background at all and um i started at 55 i'm 60 it's been five years and i haven't had my viva yet but i've passed absolutely everything else i got my last case study back yesterday my last you know theory essay um and maybe i'll never write an essay again i'm actually adding maybe to that my entire cohort are going yep, again i'm like yeah who knows um so that's come to an end and what that's left me with is space that I don't want to fill just yet. Um, I love teaching in my writing career and my theatre making career. I've always taught a little bit, not a lot. I still occasionally teach writing um, and I haven't stopped being a writer. But at some point I'll probably do some teaching. There's nothing specifically planned. It feels really interesting to me who has worked since I was 17 and well, had a part-time job since I was 15, but worked to look after myself. I mean, the reason, you know, my family didn't have loads of academics in it is because there just wasn't money for anyone to fall back on. My parents worked in a timber mill in Aotearoa, New Zealand, when we moved there when I was five. Um, and they were economic migrants from Council State in Southeast London. I was looking after myself and paying for myself from 17 as many of us are and there was nothing to fall back on ever and so I've always said yes to everything and I've been freelance my whole life I've never had sick pay and two cancers I've never had compassionate leave and so many of my closest people are dead and I've never had holiday pay in my life and that's tough but it's also an amazing freedom. And I, because I didn't grow up with much, I it's, it was always fine for me when I didn't have a car and friends were buying a car. It was fine for me when I was still living in a shared flat and friends were buying houses. And yes, I am 60, which means that it was really different for me than it is for a 22 year old now. But still, I didn't have huge expectations of what I ought to earn and ought to do. But in order to survive, I did say yes to everything. And I was a house cleaner for rich people until my mid-20s. I highly recommend being a house cleaner for rich people. They have great leftovers in their fridges. They pay no attention to what they leave on their notice boards. And so you might as well get 12 novels out of that. And, um, and they're really super grateful. You know, they're really grateful because... They can't be bothered doing their mess. And you went and changed their sheets. And we all love clean sheets. 
Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, also, they're paying cash. So that's that's really <laughs> handy when you're, you know, struggling to pay the rent. It's great. Um, I don't think it's a great job to do your whole life. I think it's a really good job in 20s and 30s and teens, like when I started. Anyway, long-winded way of saying I've always worked. I've always worked. I've said yes to everything. I was an improviser as a performer. I believe in the huge golden value of saying yes to the unknown, to the new, to the scary, but and <laughs> I'm also very aware, and this is the thing you talk about in Second Spring too, and I teach when I teach uh, yoga for writing. Sometimes no is a yes to ourselves. And I've taken this long to get there. <laughs> you know, I, I often say to my clients, hey, listen, I'm not sitting here in this therapist chair saying I've got it all sussed. I feel that too. I've just gotten better sometimes at making kinder choices. And it is my life's work to work out how to make kinder choices now. So the kind choice for me right now is I don't know what I'm doing next. I'm keeping on with my clients because I love that therapy work. I have a novel I haven't finished. I don't know. I have a thesis that I could make into some much more accessible work that I'm really excited about the the value of focusing on postmenopause as a thriving, dynamic, life-changing time. But that's all me yeah, sometime, eventually. I can feel, I said to you earlier, I can feel sparkly bits around the edges. But I'm doing my damnedest, and this is hard for me. It's not easy for me to just sit back and wait. Mm. Oh, my body agrees with me. I'm, I want to cry when I say that. I love it when I, when, you know, when tears come because you've said something or heard something, I really feel like it's my body going, yeah, yeah, will you listen? Anyway, I want to let it, me, the me I'm being becoming, show me to myself. And I think this is absolutely central to menopause process mm. and all healing mm. processes mm. and this is what partly what we medicate against because yeah. we don't want to feel that but this process it's like a a cauldron or a crucible mm. a place of becoming yeah and my, my, my meditation meditation teacher talks about the bowl the bowl on the hall table that people fill with buttons and <laughs> paper clips and bits of like widgets you go, what the fuck is this yeah. And the bowl, the bowl will fill because that's the nature of things. And it takes active energy, that no, to hold the space yeah. for the new to happen. Yeah. And that is, you know, we do that imperfectly. We, you know, we, we, we rush off, rush off mm -hmm. on a goose chase, jump mm -hmm. into some deep water, collapse, mm -hmm. go off. Oh, no, that was the wrong thing. Come back. Uh -huh except it's never the wrong thing it's the thing that you learn where to go next from yes you know one of the um i had a brilliant supervisor uh when i had a one of my early placements and he's and he was just so supportive in that when i'd screwed up clearly you know i've gone to supervision and gone oh my god i got this so wrong with this client and he went well what happened next and he said so okay so what happened next was that having realized you got it wrong it went somewhere that opens something else up. 
He said, yes, of course, we want to be, you know, we, we want to not screw up as therapists. But and when we do, and when we admit it, I mean, you know, you, just, you have to not pretend that you didn't screw up, that you, you weren't insensitive or stupid or daft or whatever. I mean, I often preface things in therapy with going, this might sound really clumsy and I'm sorry, but, you know, maybe. Um, he said, you know, we're always going somewhere with things. So anything that looks like a mistake, yeah, but maybe it's got you to the place where you know you don't want to do that again. So then it's not a mistake, it's a learning. And that takes us into, rather beautifully, into emergence. Yeah. Tell me about emergence. So from my research, what came up about, and this is specifically with women in postmenopause, and even as I say that, I want to say cisgender women, and that I'm gutted that there weren't any trans men of the right age that could be in my research because I tried and several offered and I'd already got ethics approval for the age 55 to 69 and they were the wrong age and I would have had to go back and redo it. And and I, you know, there's some really interesting research to be done there, not least because of the humanity involved in looking at diverse research. So I made a conscious choice to include black women and white women, mothers and not mothers, you know, disabled and not disabled people. Um, not least because the vast majority of Western, specifically Western uh, menopause research is on white middle-class mothers. And as a childless woman, it's like, well, hi, because <laughs> this has happened to us too. So can we stop only, you know, quite soon, 25% of all women are gonna be not mothers. It's not a small minority. It's a quarter of the population of women. Um, anyway, so I have a very diverse group, and these were in-depth interviews, 90-minute interviews, with people who had deeply different experiences of menopause. But what came out of all of it? Oh, oh and working-class women. I've got working-class women. In. I'm so excited. Not least because I don't see myself represented very often as a woman who grew up working-class, who grew up with... Yeah, pretty shitty diet, actually. And who comes from parents who have pretty shitty diets? Not because people weren't trying, but because of poverty. Although that said, both my mother and my father, who were born in 1921, did eat a lot of uh, green vegetables because their parents had allotments, which, you know, we forget. That often gets forgotten about when talking about working class diets. But anyway, um, what came up was that but the whole postmenopause thing is like in three tranches. There's the shock of change. So because menopause is officially just that year when we're not having a period, the shock of change goes on for a long time after that. And it's like, whoa, what the fuck? Where am I? Just as it is in puberty. You know, that's the point that feels so pubertal. It's like, whoa, what, what's happening? Who, who am I? What's going on? And because we live in a culture that only values us for our fertility, there's also, it's deeply loaded. It's like, oh shit, my uterus doesn't work anymore. My ovaries are changing. Where is my value? Our pronatalism is so damaging to our menopause experience. Anyway, so that's the shock of change. Then there's living with change. I was like, okay, so this is, yeah, this is who I am. What do I, what do I want? Who am I gonna be? And there's a sort of, um, I'm moving my physical body for people who are listening to this, you know, there's a sort of putting on a new skin or shedding an old skin. 
I have a short story. Um, Virago did an anthology called Furies, and it's about the the things that we call women. So there's Termagant and Virago, and um, I did Dragon. And in my short story, you know, because dragons shed their skin like snakes. And in the story, it's about the fire helping us to shed the previous skin. And sometimes we have to rip those scales off as well. Sometimes they're just not serving us anymore. So that's living with change, but also beginning to see, oh, here's a sparkly bit. Here's an interesting bit. You know, one of the women in my study, she says, um, I mean, I just got to the stage of thinking, well, is it is it shit or is it that patriarchy and oppression and misogyny and all those things are shit and you can't take a pill for patriarchy? You know, it's like, yeah, you can't. Um, and from an existential psychotherapeutic point of view, we never work with people outside of the world. It's always what world are they in? What's their family culture? What's their ethnic culture? When did they grow up? Where did they grow up? What's the world been like for them? And anyway, and then after that, there's the broadening out, which is the making meaning of change. So, and it's not because it's stopped. And see, this is the thing for me about emergence. Emergence is until one time happening. Postmenopause is an ongoing dynamic emergence continually emerging until we die. And some of that's hard because we live in a deeply ageist culture, deeply ageist. And all of us, me too, have internalized ageism. And it's really lucky that I'm queer because I've had to look at my internalized homophobia. And I think for heterosexual people, it's a little harder because they've often not had to look at their internalized shit. So I'm I'm pretty skilled at looking at my internalized crap because I had to look at my internalized homophobia. So I look at my internalized pronatalism. I look at, oh shit. So the world thinks that women who are mothers are better while also denigrating every mother. Yes, I know both things are happening at exactly the same time. The world thinks uh, people are better if they're mothers. <gasps> Bloody hell, so do I. Shit, what am I gonna do with that? Yeah, really important to remember that we're all swimming in the patriarchal marinade. Uh-huh. Yeah, and to be kind to ourselves when we when we catch those things. Yeah, yeah. The, the pull towards lip plumpers or the mm -hmm. concern with skin or whatever, however it shows up. Yeah, but yeah, you know that of of course, of course we have this internalized mm. judgment. We live in we we're in the soup. Yes. I was going to say sea, but sea or soup, either will do. Sea marinade. <laughs> this this sea of attitude, of ageism, of misogyny, of pronatalism, of patriarchy, of capitalism, is what we breathe. So when we become aware of it and how badly it's affecting us, and that we are doing it to ourselves against our own will, but we are, it's really hard to lift ourselves out of that. None of us can. But we can occasionally go, oh, there I go again, doing that thing that I don't even believe in. And how can I help myself to be more gentle around that, to listen to it? And I think that's what emergence is, because it's making meaning mm. of who I am, what life is, and all of it living towards my death. 
yeah it's it, for me i would say something like make re reclaiming and redefining our own meaning mm, yeah, like, yeah it's like yeah. taking taking it back yeah so for me around it's around the things i've created mm -hmm. the love that i've received and given mm -hmm. um the laugh the laughter that i've had in my oh, you know, the, the, the laughing <laughs> the, the mucking about yeah really yeah <laughs> and that that's what I that's the meaning that I give to my body as it is now compared to looking at my face aged I don't know 20 or 30 which frankly looks kind of unbaked I look kind of half cooked you know like it's slightly doughy <laughs> like bread bread you've got to put back in the oven but... yeah 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 mm. and you know aging is a privilege it's a very western privilege you know, there are plenty of cultures where people, where the life expectancy is nowhere near as generous as ours. And my dad died at 67, suddenly. Um, my sister died at 33, suddenly. Um, getting old is hard in an ageist culture. It's tough on the body, yes, if, we've, if, if we expect the body to be perfect, medically perfect all the time, it's really tough. But, and, it's still, wow, a whole other day. That's a good thing. And I say that too for people who are in deep despair, because a whole other day in deep despair can give us an opportunity to be true to ourselves. So my deep grief, over, I don't know, I mean, after being ill last year, I, I was pretty scared. I'm beginning to come out of that a little. That sort of real knowledge of, oh, might die today. Whoa, that's scary. Can I do a headstand anymore in my yoga practice just in case? Seriously, you know, am I able to do things that I love that give me ease? And will it be safe? Those are scary questions. But, and in that despair and upset, here's a breath, here's a moment. And in that moment, I might get to find some more of who I am. It's, it's so poignant to be aging. You know, on my 60th birthday uh, last year, last March, um, we went up to, uh, the highlands of Scotland and um, I've not been there before and people have always said you'd love it and threw myself in a lock on March the 2nd, <laughs> literally. Um, and and I said on Instagram, I'm so glad to be at the beginning of old. And partly I'm glad to be at the beginning of old because I survived. But partly I'm glad to be at the beginning of old because I recognize it as old. I'm not older. I'm at the start of old. And one of the women in my research, she says, look, I'm in my mid sixties. Things are good at the moment. You know, I've come through some really tough things and I've got some great perspective. I'm not kidding myself that it's gonna stay like this. Other things will happen. She talks of her partner. She says, he'll die, I'll die. One of us will get sick. Our bodies won't stay like this. So I'm loving where I am now 
and she talks about finding grace in where she is now. Actually, she's a beautiful interviewee. But the finding of grace, I think, is can be, can be, if we look for it, the gift of difficulty. Mm, I told you that it was going to be good. Finding grace through difficulty. I mean, yeah. I thought it might be a bit clunky to ask her for a top tip after that, to be fair. Anyway, you can find Stella at uh, stelladuffy.blog is her writing and cancer and fertility site. There's lots of great writing there. For therapy, you go to stelladuffytherapy.co.uk. And on um, socials, she's Stell Duffy, that's S-T-E-L-L-D-U-F-F-Y on Instagram and Stella Duffy Therapy on Instagram. Uh, and on Twitter and threads, she's Stell Duffy, S-T-E-L-L Duffy, D-U-F-F-Y. So you can find her there and see what happens next. So exciting. I'm really hoping for that embodied postmenopause book, obviously, because that would be really helpful for me. <laughs> and in other news, I have a whole weekend workshop of wonders in the West Country, absolutely on this theme of embodied, tender juiciness. It's called Perimenopause, A Call to Love, and that will be in a village called Doynton. It's a gorgeous place just outside Bristol on the 27th and 28th of April. I'd love to have you there. Do get in touch if you're curious about it. And I'm a facilitator for hire, so I can bring menopause awareness to your business or your community with talks and workshops. If you'd like that, do get in touch. And there are two, not one, but two online courses. If you're curious about this seasonal map that I use and you want to chart your menopause and find grounding in this process of change, have a look at the Perimenopause Starter Kit. That's quite low cost, it's accessible, there's bags of bonuses in there and we'll get you started. And if you want to deepen your understanding of the process you're going through and you know a little bit about seasonal awareness and menstruality, there's menopause. <laughs> Why do they make it so hard to say? Perimenopause unwrapped. And this offers a gentle holding to do a deep dive, that those dives that Stella was talking about into reflecting and transforming your experience of the menstrual years to clear the way ahead. And meanwhile, there's always the free resource library for you to play with and bring some sweetly radical reassurance to your heart. And if you've enjoyed this conversation and you like what you hear, you can support this podcast by buying me a cuppa through the link on my show notes, or you can share this episode with your friends who might benefit from it, or rate it or leave a review. And I so appreciate your support. And I'll be back in your ears again very soon. Goodbye.